This is a STEAM Channel program on UCTV. Go full STEAM ahead at uctv.tv slash STEAM, where science, technology, engineering, arts, and math converge. We're going to go ahead and launch into our first case study group. Here with us on stage are Brad Hughes from UC Irvine and Rajiv Utam Chandani from the New York Film Academy. And moving forward with all the speakers, if anybody uses an acronym, just throw it out there what it stands for, just so everybody's in the know. So welcome these two gentlemen up on stage. Thanks for coming. We're excited to have you here and to be here to share this project and several other projects that are very exciting. I'm just introducing um, my co-presenter, Rajiv Unamanchandi. He is, he is going to be talking about some very exciting uh, project, projects that happen uh, through integrating arts and science. And we wanted to, wanted to just mention that we come at this idea of STEAM through two different, uh, through two different pathways. He's in the School of Arts at New York Film Academy, and I'm in, in a STEM science environment at UCI. I'm bringing arts into science, and Rajiv's bringing um, science into the arts. It's going to be interesting to hear his, his stories about where this goes with college-level students. And I'll, I'll begin by setting the stage with some foundational research for why we do STEAM, studying what, how this can be transmitted through professional de- development, and then we'll look at his stories as they're very inspiring for where this can go at the, at the next level. So thanks. And he'll be back up in just a little bit. All right, so I'm very um, interested in STEAM. I think a lot of us have this intuitive interest in STEAM. I'd like to, to add something to, to what you, you may have in your toolbox for talking about this, and the idea that y- you can access research that, uh, that gives us a reason why we can say STEAM is more effective at teaching science or technology, engineering, math, and so that's what we're going to look at here. And then also, how would we teach this to our teachers to be able to make it sustainable as a movement? So um, I'm going to give you a little bit of background first. Uh, this is, this uh, building STEAM for me personally is a, is a bit of a story like all of us. What, how do we come to this particular uh, section? Well, we think we need more for STEM. And so for me, I began... Uh, work as a scientist as well as an educator and also in media. So I'm going to just detail those a little bit so you can connect with me. And by the way, if you haven't connected with me, I hope to do that. So please see this as an invitation. Um, In building STEAM for me, you can see me doing something that I I like the least here, which is counting E. coli plates in my research. Um, So I I felt like, oh, this over-specialization is too much. So I was always looking for something else. I, I heard this old saying you may have heard. Have you heard jack of all trades? is master of none. Yeah, okay, so that, that bothered me because I wanted to do more things than specialize. So what I, what I began to do with my experimentation, I do experimental evolution with microbes. So I solve problems with global climate change and look at how actually evolving species to thousands of generations of certain kinds of stresses in the, in the environment 
um, how that will play out for us in the real world. So experimental evolution is a field many people haven't heard of, but I really do evolve organisms, and then we test them out. And so this is, this is an, something that's going on. Well, it gave me an interesting opportunity to evolve generalists. That's sort of a jack-of-all-trades, right? And I also evolved specialists. And then when I competed them in the laboratory, what do you suppose happened? Of course, everybody expected, oh, well, the specialists will win because I'm going to compete them in the specialist environment. It turned out that the jack-of-all-trades often was the master and was beating specialists. So that became to me a science, scientifically, that it made sense for me to integrate. It made sense for me to go outside of my one discipline. And so that was kind of a driving force. In other areas of my work, though, training teachers, I teach um, training programs for elementary and secondary teachers at UCI. Um, And in doing this, I, I found myself also noticing that our high school teachers really could benefit from the elementary approach. You know, teaching more subjects or pulling them in and I think we, we have, that's a strong sense of steam. So I taught five different subjects running around to try to do this, but it, it wasn't very easy. I found out how difficult it was. It also was very difficult for elementary school teachers to be able to, to understand the difficulties of STEM. So that was another area where integrating high school and secondary was important. I did that through, this is Aquarium of the Pacific here, where we'd have informal science experiences and mixtures of elementary and high school teachers and try to solve the problems of how to do this this sort of training. Here I am at a think tank. This is Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I was leading something there where we were bringing math and science together in a very large... um, it's a, we, we're studying 17,000 videos of classrooms to create something called the Video Library of Practice. This will help us to look at, at research through actual observations and do this in a way from a database that's done nationally. I had a bunch of faculty here working with me to come up with the design for this. Um, as a K-12 teacher, so I came from, I was a middle school teacher before I did these things. So in that world, uh, I also found that hey, it's not enough for us to just do science. I wonder if I can mix it up a little bit. And so in this, I would have people actually scripting and doing drama and arts projects. And here we are, we're on set um, at X-Files, and we're making an episode with them. We would write episodes and send them, and and they'd they'd let us come out there and make it. So it's a lot of fun. Um, You can see here also, this is partly, I'm the guy actually on the, if you look on this picture, I'm the guy sitting on top of the truck, the guy behind is not me. He looks a little bit like because I'm bald. Uh, I had a rapid hair loss I might refer to later. Um, but anyway, I'm next to David Duchovny in the other picture when I was getting started. I'm, and so um, this is a smaller crew. You can see now um, when, I, when, I, when I look much differently. So some of these pictures may be a little confusing for you. This is me when I was just getting started. And Rajiv, you just saw, I thought there was a little similarity in the hair here at least. Um, and... This is actually at New York Film School. I was experimenting with film in different uh, places. But he uh, comes from New York, from the, the New York Film Academy. And the two of us are really seeing all kinds of connections. He's an astrophysicist. I work in biological sciences. And we're thinking about how can we put this together? What kinds of things can we do? And it really seems like Steam Connect is a great way for us to do that. And I hope I can give us some common language now as I dive into what is... Uh, what are some of the underpinnings? What's some of the research that we're doing to really understand why STEAM, on some scientific level, is superior? So let's take a look. Um, you can see here on top, in fact, that's, that's me with a hat then because I lost my hair. Why did I have a rapid hair loss? It's because, you know, 
I, Alex would say to me, because he shaved his head, he's only tw- 25, why do you do that? And uh, he, he said, I'm too busy. And I, I didn't understand that. Finally, once I got the escape grant, it became clear I was way too busy to have hair anymore. <laughs> That's how busy we are with this work. So anyway, uh, I wouldn't mind having it back, but I, I just don't have the time. <laughs> All right. So our grant, and as you know, I need to thank my funders first. This is part of a national grant program. This is a national grant program funded by NSF. They, um, if you look at uh, what's happened with the program that funds us, MSP is the name of Mass Science Partnerships that was the funding, but we were right in between MSP and this new STEM Plus C. I don't know how many of you have heard of that, but they are funding STEM Plus C, and you should probably know about this a little bit. They see the need for having computers in their work, but I'd say additionally, they were very interested when they heard about the STEAM. This is the largest funded program for anything of its kind with arts and integration and STEAM in the country. It's $6.4 million that we have for this initial work, uh, and we plan to expand it. It's going to be uh, exported nationally. I'll talk about that a little bit more as we we move on. Okay, Um, the project includes partnerships. Now, these partners I won't get into, but it's schools, obviously important. The kids are where it's at, so we have to get right in there with them, and you'll see them dancing around a little bit. Um, Seegersham Center for the Arts, our, our Arts Institute is a big part of this, and I want to tell you about that. At the bottom, it's just UCI, that's where I'm from, and then this uh, uh, National Science Foundation, all right? So let's dive in and see a little bit more about ESCAPE, and then we'll go from there. the core curriculum and they're able to do it at a much higher level. Kids are really engaged in the, in the concept. They absolutely are having so much fun. They can't wait to be able to do the next one. You guys have provided a connection. It's really getting them to understanding their best way of learning. I'm very excited to put this program in place. It's something that I've been wondering about for years. Are we really addressing all the needs of our students in the best ways possible? I'm excited about being outside of my comfort zone. You know, pushing myself beyond what I've been doing to this point, which is what this program is making me do. On a scale of 1 to 10, I am... Probably a 10 at implementing this. I think I'll be at a 10. Strong 10. 10. Probably 10. (laughs) Was it a lot of fun? Yeah. How much fun was it? Super. Super fun? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. I first want to give her seal of approval before I proceed. All right. Uh, what, how do we fit into STEAM? And it's probably obvious it's just the S and the A. But the methodologies and the, and the research we find really applies to the psychological underpinnings of our work, which should include the rest of TEAM for that, so that we're, we're looking at um, technology, engineering, and math and how that could benefit from arts as well. And I'm very interested in have other grant programs where bringing engineering in, it's a huge issue. that We don't do enough of that, and that's a, that's a wonderful thing to talk about at another time. So 
our arts integration, I think probably the most important thing is that we have great arts instruction to really understand that. So not many of us can cover all the fields and areas. So uh, a big part of this was having some of the best arts uh, educators around. Center for the Arts has very large active education programs in which the best and brightest work intently to bring the visual and performing arts to the ESCAPE project through fantastic new ideas for integrating the arts into STEM subjects and into science in particular. Our staff is made up of educators and professional master teaching artists working together to serve nearly 300,000 people in five Southern California counties. It is an extraordinary honor to work closely with my colleagues and our teaching artists to bring such a high level of innovation to arts integration. This work is so important to everyone because it provides both teachers and their students a world-class opportunity to put the fantastic tools that only the arts can provide to excellent use in teaching and learning STEM subjects. Okay, so to begin with here, I think we have a sense, if you were, if you were chatting like last night, having a cocktail and saying, oh, STEAM, I'm into that, it's so motivating for students. That's right. And we may not go that much deeper for many of us because we're not quite sure what's going on. But to break it down to the simplest level, there's a lot of processing activities that happen when we do, the art, we do arts. And so some of those VAPA processing activities go on and on. I'm just going to mention a couple of them. And actually, I'm going to ask you guys to stand up and do a dance right now. That's kind of what we do. So this is a um, time of day dance. So if you would, rise up out of your seats. We're going to watch this as a rehearsal. So this is Earth Science Grade 5, Lesson 1. So dance, I mean, it can't be a professional dancer going up there. It's got to be, a, you know, if you do that, it, it needs to work for kids. So you don't need to feel like you need to pull us off like a pro here. But you're going you're gonna to watch this dance once, and then we'll try to do it, okay? And this, this is the time of day. You'll see that they're moving around here, rotating on the axis, and they're brushing their teeth in the morning. Then they're shooting baskets when it's uh, around noon. Okay, then they come in, and you'll see them now eating at dinner time, and then they're going to get ready for bed. They sleep through the night, and so this is a 24-hour cycle. And so that's a little dance for them. So let's try it. We'll do it along with them. And one, two, three, four. Go for it. Rotate. This is the only dance I was cleared to do, because you're not like that. Very good. Oh, this is good. Alice, you capturing this? Awesome. Very good. I'm very impressed. All right. So go ahead, have a seat. The next movement we aren't allowed to do here, but these kids are doing something called the elaboration. The last one was a rehearsal. So we watched in rehearsal and then did it. Um, sedimentation is taught here first with bo sediment bottles. You see bigger particles at the bottom, smaller on top. And now the kids come in and actually act it out. So you see here, the smaller particles, little grains of sand are flying around. And then they get down on the ground and say, oh, these are big boulders that we see. And so that's, that's next here. And the, well, the boulders are just pushing these really slow and moving down. So this is this sense of a processing where they're elaborating on the process of the lab with their embodied cognition and their dancing. Okay. Uh, we probably also would think that, hey, drawing pictures is a big part of this art. So studio arts, and we see that, yeah, it's definitely helpful, and there's data to back that up, both as learning the concept and as 
um, reversing misconceptions. In fact, let's look at misconceptions for a minute. This might be surprising to you that a quarter of Americans don't know that's the earth that revolves around the sun. Um, and you might think, oh, that's just an American problem in our schools. But in Europe, it's one in three who don't know that. So it's amazing. But this is actually extremely common. In fact, let's take a look at this uh, a little bit more about when these were discovered. So misconceptions first were discovered about 30 years ago. And this was the video that kicked it off. Okay, I think the seasons happens because... As the Earth travels around the sun, it gets nearer to the sun, um, which produces warmer weather and gets farther away, which produces colder weather, and, thence, and hence the seasons. How hot it is or how cold it is at any given time of the year has to do with the, the, the closeness of the Earth to the sun during the seasonal periods. It gets hotter when we get closer to the sun, and it gets colder when we get further away from the sun. These graduates, like many of us, think of the Earth's orbit as a highly exaggerated ellipse. Even though the Earth's orbit is very nearly circular, with distance producing virtually no effect on the seasons. All right, so it's actually the tilt of the Earth that we were just dancing out, okay? And we'll look at that maybe a little more. But why would it be that 21 out of 23 people have that misconception? That means it's, it's probably not a Harvard problem, um, but it's, it's so ubiquitous, it's it was very surprising. In fact, this is something, if you don't know much about this, our curriculums are riddled with misconceptions. In fact, the focus of our research is largely based on seeing if we can unseat those, those misconceptions through VAPA. So knowing what maintains that, this idea of cognitive dissonance, how many people have heard of that so I just know? Good. So you're probably aware that this, this relates in the sense that if we learn this idea from friends or parents, which are very common, or people that are very close to us on a social level, like Vygotsky social education theory would say that it's very hard to let that go because it makes us insecure to think that it's not true, that the foundations of what we know and understand aren't true. And so it makes us so uncomfortable, we can't look at it. And so kids won't look at this because there's an unconscious stress. And so here they are, we are maintaining huge misconceptions. And among scientists, there's huge misconceptions that are scientific. There's thousands throughout the curriculum in STEM. Here we are addressing this same misconception in, our, in one of our fifth grade classes. Right hand high, left hand low. And move your hands away from your body a little bit. That's the tilt of the axis of the Earth. When our tilt is toward the sun, we're getting the most direct light. What season do you think summer. that might be? Summer. It might be summer. And how long do you think our days would be? Would they be longer or shorter? Longer. Who, whose right hands are getting the most direct light from the sun? Just in the way you're standing. Who's getting the most direct light? Yeah, but whose right hand? Is this right hand getting the most direct light? Yes, no. Well, you guys have it up here kind of close to the sun. So you know we're on a tilt. Now, the tilt never changes. So when we orbit the sun, orbit the sun counterclockwise. Do not change your axis. Good job. Good job. What happens as the summer changes to fall? What happens? What happens that we notice that's different? 
the base get colder and it starts and the children start into that bond. Very good. One thing I learned today is. One thing I learned today is that we have direct and indirect sunlight because of the tilt. The tilt and the orbit. The oh, the curve. The curve. The tilt stays the same. But what that does is it gives us different seasons. All right. So thinking back to um, the challenge maybe you felt when you got up to do the dance, there's a little bit of challenge. There's challenges, other challenges too. This is a challenge for ELLs. I want to think about that a little bit. It's challenging with the language of science. Uh, we have here technical vocabulary, so if you tried to read that, you might have a little trouble pronouncing it. Nominalization, you look at this and say, oh, let's make some fancy nouns. We do this in educational research all the time so that people won't understand what we're trying to do. It helps us get grants. So the uh, ordinary words like the school of fish or three different kinds of degrees, uh, I'll take the easy one. <laughs> so if you look at affective filter, you can think about this. The affective filter is the sense of stress that we get. It's anxiety. It is increased if we have low self-confidence in a task or if, it's, if we're not motivated. So we're going to look at this a little deeper and think about VAPA affecting the filter. Okay, so reducing affective filter is very helpful to us, and so we'll take a quick look at that. And if you did feel stressed, we were pretty happy to do the dance, but you might have immediately, when it happened, felt some kind of nervousness. That same kind of nervousness, we didn't know what we're doing on this dance. ELLs don't understand the language, and it's a real problem. We'll take a, a look at this. A key goal of our project is to make science education accessible to students who have limited proficiency in English. By incorporating the arts and science education, we enable students with limited proficiency to actually have hands-on engaging experiences, have multiple opportunities to respond to scientific content, and multiple opportunities to build scientific language. These are best practices for English language development, and the arts is an ideal approach to do so. Yeah, Penny Collins by CoPI on the grant actually wrote this national document on how to, how to do this and work. So she's an expert on English language learners. We actually go well beyond this, though. Our work is actually about taking VAPA to the next step. So it's standard in our lessons that we take care of, the, of what is important for ELLs. But now we want to show how VAPA does that one better. So cognitive load is another area, like affective filter. And um, Gabriel Estrella is one of my grad students working on this. Cognitive load theory takes our working memory capacity and cognitive processing into account when explaining how instruction can either facilitate or impede meaningful learning. Using this as a theoretical framework, we can empirically assess how inquiry and VAPA lessons differentially impact cognitive load and subsequent science learning and performance. Findings from these results are significant because they can inform effective instructional design geared towards improving science achievement outcomes for students of diverse backgrounds. All right. And the big thing on this is that we're adding a kinesthetic channel where before we're only working through verbal and visual. This gives us more cognitive capacity. So we're looking at embodied cognition as well. And the idea of these gestures are going to help us seed our ideas and give us something, the kids something to hang on. That's a big part of the dance. And if you look at uh, its, its effect on student interest. I'm going to design a student questionnaire that measures affect, looking at things such as boredom, anxiety, and excitement. Students are, will complete this survey after they do a dance activity, after they conduct an experiment, and after they complete notebook activity. 
and this will enable me to determine which of these practices are more effective for building interest. So when we design this curriculum, we work with experts in both education as researchers, um, in professional development, we have STEM scientists, and then we have artists who both have experience with some education issues. We um, have three levels that we teach at grades three, four, and grades five. And then you saw some of that footage from grade five before. We also integrate video storytelling into our work, and this is obviously a very important area. And so shows like Bill Nye or Jeff Korn or The Magic School Bus, there's a story component that science that makes it um, very interesting. And so this is Castle Kim, one of my graduate students who is working with this. In Escape, I'm producing the next generation of educational program, Wild Wonders. Wild Wonders is a series of funny videos that explores different biological topics through a story. To go with Wild Wonders, I'm designing an interactive notebook, the Book of Wonders. The book will encourage kids to document what they learn creatively. In this project, I'm asking the question, can scientific storytelling help kids understand and learn science compared to the factual videos? Can a story get kids excited about the wonders of science? Can science ignite the imagination when it is told through a story? All right. And we know you guys have mentioned you have the Da Vinci Award. Uh, Einstein said that the greatest science are artists also. The um, Book of Wonders is a notebooking uh, tool that we use that actually weaves together the curriculum and the different videos that we have. And you can see one of the nice things about this is that in notebooking, the kids make it their own. They get ownership of it. That also ties them in and reduces the affective filter and increases the motivation. Escape is experimenting with connecting the scientific community to K-12 through classrooms through videos, animations, and illustrations. I'm developing short video lessons that will feature real-world scientific researchers discussing their own research, lesson-specific NGSS concepts, and associated common misconceptions. We will measure the video efficacy in reversing these misconceptions while also studying effectiveness of animations and illustrations used within the videos. So our institute training was at three different locations to physically bring together the, this idea of, of STEAM. So we started off at the Center for the Arts doing performances and, talk, and training them and the kinds of uh, work that needs to be done on the arts level. Then out at, at our county department of education, we went through and unpacked 18 lessons for that first year. And then at UCI, we went out and did tours of lab, working labs and then got the sense of really what STEM science is about. And we took 150 teachers through these three steps. We also go into professional develop for, development for another 150 teachers so that we bring this out online and test it. So this is uh, one of my grad students that's dealing with that work. Teachers are learners too, but most PD does not attend to or account for their thinking. And attending to their thinking in the context of PD should improve their practice and subsequent student outcomes. Ongoing PD that's designed around teacher curricular implementation provides teachers with an opportunity to think, share, reflect, and enact practices in the classroom, and receive feedback along the way. This approach provides teachers with an ongoing support and resources which can help build teacher confidence, 
content knowledge, and pedagogical content knowledge and lead to improved student learning. So we follow a spiral PD in which we look and revise as we go on. And this is possible for us to continue an ongoing PD that becomes very, very good through the years. We do this through an, a sustainable um, product of online uh, access for teachers. And this uh, content is available because we do high-level uh, HD, ultra HD uh, filming, so it's future-proof, so that we can continue to use the same materials and not spend $7 million again. Now we have this captured in very advanced ways. This is grad students. So I train people in this kind of work uh, for communicating science, filmmaking, as well as science. And so here's actually a principal. It's good to get them involved. And then uh, a grad student on the right there also. You can see the setup there is fairly complex. We have advanced microphonics. I build these cones, and then I am able to tap in conversations throughout the room and then work with four or five cameras so that I can go out back later and edit it any way I want to for my purposes. We are able to look, when we look at the data here, we're able to measure the VAP lessons, but we also look at the inquiry lessons that match these, so without VAPA. So what if you do the same exact things, but there's no VAPA, and it's just inquiry? What do you think would happen if you measured those? Now, consider that, and also, what if I combine it, and I do VAPA first, then inquiry, or inquiry first, and then VAPA? That's the setup here. So I'm going to take a look at both of those, the combination of it, the single VAPA integration, and then just the inquiry alone. Here's what happened. This is our initial data. Now, it's very initial, and we're just about done here. You can see here that the single training of VAPA was, was better, higher improvements in their overall knowledge. And then the combined also VAPA, VAPA first before inquiry was better than inquiry first and then VAPA. So you can think for yourself what that, why that might be, what's going on there. The misconceptions, in reversing misconceptions, you'll see, again, VAPA was better for that. And the combination, again, VAPA first. So we're getting that as our data. So it seems that we're getting good results, which is very exciting because most education studies do not end up having significant results. So here's what classroom teachers are saying, and then we're done. Escape is very different than what we have seen in the past. Integrate, integrate. It's like, how? And... Um, this is, this is very practical. Oh my gosh, the, um, the students were absolutely thrilled, um, highly engaged. Very enthusiastic and excited every time we were, whether it was doing the dance and music or doing the lessons within the classroom. Oh, rain or pebbles. They actually do the gestures and they talk about what it is. My English learners are using the words. They're using sedimentation when they're talking about science and weathering and erosion. They're actually making connections from what they learned in science to what their, their real world. Concepts were abstract in fifth grade that we were learning about, but I think because of all the different dance lessons and the different experiments that we were able to do with them, it became more concrete. Several students have that light bulb come on all of a sudden. It's one of those times where you love when you find those things where the kids are learning, but they don't really realize they're learning. When the kids' eyes light up and they go, I, I, you know they finally got it. It's almost like they lived it. All right, thank you very much. And I want to um, just end with introducing Rajiv. But thanks for listening. Thank you. So Rajiv has some great stories about things, so let's get right to that. Thank you, Brad. Right. Hello, hello. Is it working? I can't even tell. 
pleasure meeting all of you or seeing all of you. Thank you, Kim. Thank you, Brad, for a wonderful presentation. And Kim, of course, for organizing this wonderful, wonderful event. I think it's fantastic. It gives us an opportunity to share our stories and our work. Uh, as Brad mentioned, my name is Rajiv Utamchandani. I'm an astrophysicist and a professor at the New York Film Academy. Uh, I'm the director of STEAM education initiatives at the school. And uh, this presentation will be basically, it's more informal than Brad's. And we'll just kind of share a little bit of our story, what we've done, what we've accomplished, and the motivations that uh, sort of motivate me to teach science uh, to visual and performing artists. And the New York Film Academy, it's, it's an accredited institution. It's a film school. It's a visual and performing arts school. So as an astrophysicist, you go into the school and you say, well, how am I going to teach subjects that I'm incredibly passionate about to students who want to become actors or producers or cinematographers or filmmakers? And so this hopefully will give you an idea of how we approach this sort of a wonderful group of students, and you'll see some of the stories that we have to share. So just to give you a brief overview of the talk, uh, we'll talk about the necessity of telling a story. Why is it that all of us should be sharing our stories, especially if we are scientists, and to share that information with the public? And let's face it, if we discover something fantastic and wonderful, nobody's going to rush to the scientific journals to read what we've done They'd rather see a really exciting commercial about it, a really exciting video about it. And um, this is sort of what we're going to talk about. Next, we'll talk about from STEM to STEAM, teaching physics, astronomy, mathematics, and these subjects at the New York Film Academy to visual performing arts students. What have we done? What do we want to accomplish? And we'll show just a couple of videos about that. And finally, a little bit more of the technical details how we're capturing our programs in a very exciting case study, which we hope to really wrap up within the next, you know, maybe two years or so. So it's long-term, and we've just started this. It's very exciting. I'll share that with you. Okay, telling a story. So Hollywood, that's sort of the world that we come in with, at least with the school. And I'm an astrophysicist, so I go in there, and I try to look really cool in front of my students by alluding to, like, Tom Cruise or Angelina Jolie or all these very famous individuals. And, of course, they appreciate that. So um, if we have a mathematical problem or a problem in mathematics where we're, let's say, trying to measure the height of a building, then I say, well, Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible 5 or 6 has to jump off of this building, but then he remembered t uh, getting my lesson in, in school and um, what did he remember about that? How is he going to measure the height so that he can determine if he's going to jump off this building and successfully land or if something bad happens? Um, Hollywood is a, is a wonderful sort of industry that can share stories and inspire people to become better intellectuals, to become better human beings. And being at the school, we realize that power. And at least with STEM, a lot of individuals, a lot of people know science and, and all these fields from watching Hollywood films. So if we utilize that, that uh, tool, if you will, if you utilize that industry to showcase our advancements as a human civilization in STEM, in science, I think that's a wonderful tool. So I'm just going to show you some pictures, and let's see if you can remember which movies uh, these are from. So first... Right, I think I heard that. You're like my students, kind of just whispering. The Imitation Game with our friend Benedict Cumberbatch. And of course, it tells the story of Alan Turing and the development of the first electronic computer, the ENIAC, 
which was built here in the United States, and the Colossus, which was built in the British. So this is around World War II. Great movie. Next. Yes, very good. The gentleman somewhere there. You'll get a hug from me afterwards for getting the right answer. 2001, A Space Odyssey. So at least in its base elements, it was very scientifically accurate, aside from everything else that it did. The next, obviously, it just came out, Interstellar. It was actually a very good movie. I got very emotional, you know, while watching because of the music and everything. So it was, it was very good. And of course, uh, Dr. Kip Thorne, um, who's in Caltech, and I've met him several times, actually, a very nice gentleman, a world-renowned expert in wormholes and time travel, an astrophysicist as well, and he governed the entire production of this film. So at least in its treatment of these science fiction elements of hyperdimensional space and time travel, transmitting information back through time, it's very, very accurate, actually. So uh, wonderful movie. Next, Apollo 13. So as we scientists like to refer to that mission, the successful failure of Apollo 13 to land on the moon. So we learned a lot from it, but of course we could not land the moon because of a number of reasons. And the most popular one, which I will show next, and this is a short film, and I'll show you a clip, uh, just a, a picture from this short film, and let's see if you recognize that. So it's sort of, it, that's me actually, and that's uh, a shot from one of my students' films, and the reason I show it, it has all of 25 views on YouTube before it was taken down. Um, but, uh, so this is for my astronomy class. My students made this video about two years ago. And in my, especially in my astronomy and physics classes, my final project is always to capture some of the concepts that we've learned in class in the context of a story. So you can either write a story or screenplay, you can either shoot a short film, but it has to be based on accurate scientific concepts. And even if you deal with science fiction concepts like time travel or parallel universes or whatever else it is, then it has to at least be as accurate as possible. So what these students did was, there were two of them, Matthew and Malachi, wherever you are, love you guys. Um, it's been two years. So what they did was after class one day, they asked me, um, said, Rajiv, could you please uh, talk about black holes and how they're, they're formed? So I said, okay, fine, I'll do that. And they wanted to include that in their, uh, in their film. So I did, and I was talking about the black hole and Schwarzschild radius and things like that, writing fancy equations on the board. And I was so surprised. I was very pleasantly pleased when I saw the product, when they showcased it in the final uh, class. Because what they did was, um, so the story was set that they wanted extra time to study for my final exam. So the film starts with them kind of throwing across this paper because they failed the midterm. And they built the space car, so I don't know how they can fail the midterm if they built the space car, but that's another story. And to slow down time, because in, in special relativity, the faster you travel, closer to the speed of light, time is slower for you. Of course, in this case, it has a completely opposite effect. They have even less time to study for the exam, but I let that slide. Um, so they get lost in a parallel universe because they go through this black hole by mistake, and they're, they're lost, so they don't know how to get back into our universe here so what they did was, in this car that they had, they had this uh, dashboard that says, Ask Rajiv. So one of my students was like, I got it, let's just ask Rajiv. And he pressed the button, and I had my Ben Kenobi moment, you know, where like, greetings, my students. And then I explain, you know, how a black hole is created and stuff like that. And they go through the black hole and uh, come back to our universe. So it, it was a fun film, and if you want me to send you the, uh, 
the video, of course, you're more than welcome uh, to ask. Uh, they'll be happy about it at least. 26 views maybe after this presentation. Um, what does this all mean? Um, there's this project that NASA has been developing called the James Webb Space Telescope. Anybody know what that is? Maybe anyone raise their hands if anyone does know? Ah, very good. You get a hug from me too. <laughs> uh, it will be my pleasure and my honor. But that's the point. All of those movies, they, they've been what? Created in a year, six months, three months, uh, cost, I don't know, 100 million, less than that or more than that. The James Webb Space Telescope is a $9 billion project, and it's been in the works for over 20 years. And this is such a monumental project and monumental scientific achievement. It'll be launching in 2018 as a successor to the Hubble Space Telescope that will enable us to peer further into the universe than we ever have before. Now, we ask, of course, even asking in this room, very few individuals know about the JWST. And as a scientist, and this is taxpayers' money, of course, uh, funding this thing, we have an obligation not just to conduct research, but to share that research, to share that passion with as many people as we can. And again, in the context of talks or presentations or even scientific papers, the audience is very, very limited. We need to tell, capture this in the context of a scientific story, storytelling, um, produce very exciting videos, and to kind of explain a little bit about what that is, this is just a, a graphic that shows you where the JWST is. It's all the way at the bottom. And all the other telescopes that we've had so far at the top. And basically what this says is that the JWST will peer into about 200 million years after the Big Bang, which will enable us to see the first stars and the first galaxies, among other missions that it has. And one of the most exciting missions, actually, you may have read about it. Recently, NASA made the announcement that perhaps within the next 20 to 30 years, we may be able to confirm if there is life outside of our planet. And likely that will come from the JWST. Because one of its missions is it's going to look into exoplanets and characterize the molecular constituents of its atmosphere. So if an alien civilization is looking at tiny old Earth and it cannot see in as much detail see individual human beings or civilizations, um, uh, the, the, the context is that they can actually detect uh, molecular constituents in our atmosphere and determine that there's an intelligent life form living on this planet. So the JWST will do the same thing. So hopefully we'll be able to see if there are aliens out there. So what are we going to do with this? This is what the telescope looks like, very fancy, tennis court sized. Uh, that's a wonderful picture of one of its uh, uh, mirrors. So how will people know about this? What can we do as a film school, how can I capture this in STEAM initiatives and tell the JWST story, the $9 billion, 20-year story? We'll formulate or create, produce 30 to 60-second PSAs, animations, and we'll capture that in interactive kiosks, which we may feature in airports over the next one or two years. So this is a collaboration that we've started with NASA and with Northrop Grumman to capture the development of the James Webb Space Telescope in the context of the classes that we teach at the New York Film Academy. <clears throat> so let's show some of these projects here. And we don't have the videos yet for, for JWST because we've just started this collaboration, but at least we have some images to show you. We recently visited Northrop Grumman, and this was their wall of galaxies 
that they were kind enough to share with us. So Dr. Alberto Conti, who's one of the project managers at Northrop, actually uh, gave us a tour. There's this tool called the Microsoft Worldwide Telescope. And if you go through this telescope, uh, through the software, you can actually tour as much of the universe as we've uh, cataloged. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful tool. And to be able to see it in such high-resolution monitors, very large, was quite wonderful. So uh, very impressive pictures here. That's, um, I'm at the center there, by the way, in case you're wondering. Um, so that's the JWST sun shield. It's a shield that will block radiation from the sun to keep the telescope very, very cool. And this is a, a mock-up that they're going to use to study before launching it, uh, as I mentioned, in a couple of years. Okay? So now our students are pitching ideas to NASA to, to make these 30 to 60 second PSAs and make them very scientifically accurate but with a twist of Hollywood storytelling. Let's just show you some examples of what else we do. So the first example I'll show you is a video. Three of our students actually went to Tufts University last summer. So Tufts has the Center for Engineering Education Outreach Program, and I wanted to teach my students engineering design and capabilities beyond what we do typically at our school. So I said, well, I want you to pack your bags, go to Tufts for a week, create a really exciting video for them, and during the process, participate in their uh, engineering workshops and learn engineering design from expert engineers. So this video, it's a short one, will kind of give you a chronicle of their experience. Hi, my name is Triana Garcia. My name is Tristan Simpson. And my name is Gianmarco Heilman. And I'm in the BFA Filmmaking. Bachelor of Fine Arts degree. I'm a BFA Filmmaking student at New York Film Academy in Los Angeles. So we got sent to Tufts University to make a documentary. With a small crew that came here from Los Angeles. To find out about the CEO um, the engineering program that Tufts offers. And it was up to us to figure out, first of all, what the story is and how we would tell it. Tufts CEO is the Center for Engineering, Education, and Outreach. And they're an engineering school that focuses on all three of those branches. We were there more for the outreach to try to put the word out to the community by making a promotional piece for them, letting the world know who they are and what they're doing. CEO is really big working with children because they really want to start children off early, letting them know how fun and magical engineering can be. Mm. Now this is that famous scene from Jurassic Park. Objects are closer in mirror than they appear. I feel like they got curious about filmmaking, just like we did about engineering. There is engineering in filmmaking. Someone had to engineer a camera. Um, and there's also creativity in engineering. Um, they make these robots that are like insects out of Legos that can walk, and how is that not creative? I had a great time over there, I learned a lot, and uh, they made it a lot of fun to be there. Yeah, it's, it's just a great experience. And no other school, as far as I know, has this opportunity for the filmmaker. Okay. So you get an idea of what we do. It was, it was really fun for the students to be able to participate in programs, and it means something to them, because we're not just sort of teaching them out of context. We say, you have to make a video for these guys, and which means that you have to understand as much or as many aspects of engineering and engineering design as possible. 
So it's a wonderful experience. It gives meaning to these subjects which may traditionally not have any sort of relevance to these students. Again, uh, these are three filmmakers that we sent. As another example, because we have an animation department at the New York Film Academy as well, so I had uh, one of my students who made this animation with a faculty supervisor, and I said, well, you know, you're in my astronomy class. Rather than creating a light-speed study time video of parallel universes, why don't you animate the research of one of my colleagues? So we collaborated with Caltech, and... So what he did was he discovered this, this star called a brown dwarf star. It's what we call a star that didn't quite make it. And it's sort of between a planet like Jupiter and a main sequence star like the sun. So where's that, that bridge that gaps uh, a planet? And as it contains more and more and more gases, and it starts to have thermonuclear reactions to become a star. So brown dwarf stars are very exciting. They're very hard to detect. So what Dr. David Kirkpatrick, my colleague, did was he detected this one brown dwarf star that was moving at near escape velocity in orbit around the center of our galaxy. And he used data from about 60 years of telescope observation. And you can see the difference of the images taken from these telescopes and then animating all of that so it becomes very visually appealing so that people who are not experts in science can say, wow, that actually looks kind of cool. It's not just a where's Waldo type of thing, you know? So here, you can see that. So that's actual telescope data. That's from the Digital Sky Survey. And that's a star that's moving. So this is hiding in plain sight. And once again, uh, our students and, and some of our faculty members creating this had to understand as much of the dynamics of brown dwarf stars as possible. And you can see as it moves, this is an animated version and all of that, these are the, the actual data that has been taken. So we kind of extrapolate that information. And it's pretty simple in its style, but you can see, again, the difference in visual appeal from real scientific or real images and these real images translated into a very visually appealing uh, animation. And this is from the two-mass telescope. And finally, and you can see how blurry that is from the Ys. And again, just imagine if you're a student and you're taking a class in astronomy and you're actually doing what you love doing, creating animations, and you are not forced to learn anything. You have to learn it because you have to create a visual product that you are extremely passionate about. So the difference in impact is, is monumental, and that's sort of part of the research that we want to conduct, because we can show these videos and talk about it, but can we actually quantify that research? Um, this is another video. So I also do a lot of research on climate change, climate science. Um, so my astronomy class, again, this was uh, earlier, mid-last year, and I had an astronomy class with actors. So I said, let's do this project where we will launch uh, high-altitude weather balloons into space, outfit them with cameras and all kinds of fancy instruments to measure temperature, pressure, humidity, and all of these things, and try to link that to available data based on cli our climate change understanding currently. So what we decided to do was we decided to capture the topography of the vegetation in Tehachapi Mountains, that's in Central California desert, and to compare those images to images that we've taken from uh, satellites and, and airplane observations over the past 60, 70 years, 
capture the moisture content in that vegetation and see what the difference is. So this is a a very complex long-term research. But what I wanted to do was teach my students the scientific method and, of course, the method of engineering design. We have to outfit a box like this. These are the weight restrictions. It's the shape restrictions. How will you construct something like that with the instruments that we know we have to uh, outfit in there? And the research is something that I've, I've taken over that I'm working with two other colleagues from JPL and which we'll be working on for, well, a long time, let's just say. So let's watch this video. And um, I think it's been very, very well done. So hopefully you like it as well. We know that the Earth is warm. We are the ones that are pushing the Earth to change. We need to actually do something about it. We need to preserve this beauty. It is a global phenomenon, but it's very difficult to do research on a global scale. So what's more tangible to do is to get these experiences on a local scale. Therein lies the context of this project. For our students to actually, by themselves, take images of the Earth from increasing altitudes. Giving this empowerment to the students, I think, is a very, very important aspect of what we do at the school. To analyze some footage and look at the field, the vegetation, how it's changed. Southern California has been experiencing droughts the past many decades. Comparing infrared images to visible light images will give us an indication of how much moisture is actually contained within natural vegetation here in Southern California. How is it different from today to a couple of months ago, a couple of years ago, a couple of decades ago? That in and of itself will give you some form of data, some form of measure to observe. We met like around 5.45 in the morning to go and launch the balloons. It didn't ever feel real until we were actually there in Tehachapi and we're building the balloons. It was this whole process. You fill this giant latex balloon with helium and you get it to be really big. The balloon is huge, like it's even bigger than me. The cameras were turned on, the tracking devices were working properly. Now it's the time to let it go. You ready? You got it? Okay. Three, Three, two, two, one! Watching it go off in the sky is so cool. Just the whole experience was pretty amazing. We have to imagine we're at the mercy of nature. We have a general idea of what the wind pattern conditions will be like based on current prediction systems that we do have. But we never know exactly what's going to happen. We didn't get any transmission back. Jim said, I didn't hear any news about the second balloon. We would lose connection for a couple minutes and then it would pop up and then it would like, it would disappear for a while and we couldn't get it back. We keep driving around. I don't know if we're gonna find this. We're in the middle of nowhere, like we can't see it. It was kind of stressful, to be honest. Uh, Cause I, I was like, did we do this correctly? Finally, after an hour, a couple hours, we got the GPS signal back. 
Rajiv yelled, We got the location! We got it! <laughs> and like everybody just took a huge breath after that because we were kind of holding it. Uh, it took some time though because like was lost in the desert. It's a really small parachute in a little, really small box. And we spread out all over like in a line. I, I remember someone yelling, Found it! Found it! Everything was intact. One of the GoPro cameras landed in its face. We all screamed, like, <laughs> Yeah! Yes, we found it! We got our balloons back. After that, I, I remember, as soon as I got into the van, I slept. <laughs> we see how beautiful the Earth is. And to see, like, the mountains and the vegetation. The blue line, and then go white, and then go dark. We got everything we expected and more. The change is definitely there. Now it's marking exactly where those changes are and exactly quantifying what those changes are. We see global warming through our experience and not the experience of others. We worked all together, you know, it was, it was a great experience overall. We need to change our ways. We need to stop polluting our atmosphere. And hopefully people will care more and hopefully they'll get the message. Our obligation to act is now to ensure our children, to ensure our children's children have a good future, that's our responsibility. Does anybody need a Kleenex or something? <laughs> so. As you can see, the, the impact that such a project has on the students is, is, is extremely significant. And to kind of allude to what Brad said earlier, well, in terms of misconceptions, climate change is real, and because of our cameras, we can confirm that the Earth is round. It's, kind of, it's a joke. You know, so. um, but again, it's giving the students the ownership of, here's a real-time, real-world research project, and now it's up to you to do something about it. I'll be here as a guiding hand, and the, the actual research itself, as I mentioned, is extremely complex. But what the students learn from it, engineering design, the scientific method, is, is phenomenal. And especially if we tell them, you know what, next week you'll be in front of a camera and you'll be interviewed, and you're an actor, so you better you know, get your act together and um, sound very smart. And of course, which, which means that they have to go in and review all the science so that when they're asked the questions about climate change or about the project itself, they know exactly at the snap of a finger what to say and what the, uh, the details are about that. So this is actually part of a, what we call a New York Film Academy in, or Film School in Space sort of initiative. And we did our first project two years ago. It was also a high-altitude weather balloon, but it was just kind of for fun to teach my students the buoyancy of gases and the difference between, for example, hydrogen, helium, the rising, falling rate, and whatnot. Um, and so one of my students, they, they, he actually, he was an animation student, and he um, made a statue of this guy holding a camera. And so our camera was kind of pointing to that statue, and we saw that rise and fall, essentially. So it was really cool. This was our second one, which was, of course, much more serious with much more meaning. And we'll probably do another one, if not this year, then next year. So I was thinking, well, I can't just do three balloons now that seem kind of redundant. So how do we go the next step? And I'm not sure if you know, but there's these things called CubeSats. Anybody know what CubeSats are? Maybe. Yes, another hug for you, ma'am. 
Um, CubeSats are basically what we call micro or nano satellites. They're about 10 by 10 by 10 centimeters, and very light, of course, very inexpensive. I think if you make it, it's around eight to $10,000. You still need a ride into space. So what NASA does is if you put in some really cool scientific experiments that have some real uh, either research value or educational value, you send a proposal to NASA. I have to use my contacts for that, you know, inner, inside contacts. And you get a ride into one of their rockets because they send things up there all the time, satellites that orbit the Earth. And um, so we'll probably do that. So we'll be orbiting the Earth for about three or four months before the orbit disintegrates and falls back into uh, the Earth. So that's another very complex project, but at least the, again, scientific method, engineering design, project-based learning, those are extremely important things, and the students can certainly learn a lot from it. And capturing this in a nice story would be very, very exciting for them as storytellers. So just to discuss a little bit about some of the research that we would like to capture in all this. So the first question, how do the rigor and structure of the scientific method affect traditionally creative-minded students? So our students are visual performing artists, very creative, you know, very you know, um, outgoing, things like that. And in order to place some sort of a structure in their methods of thinking, how can we use all these projects that we've done? Project-based learning, uh, learning outside of the classroom, science-based screenplays or short films and things like that. How do we quantify that? Do unique hands-on project-based programs offer benefits over traditional classroom methods of teaching? So again, this climate change project and NIFA in space, all of these different things. How does that impact the students? Because I can write equations all day long, and I love, I love, 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 love mathematics. Writing complex equations, I just write it and say, wow, isn't that a beauty? And I always tell my students, that's the true universal language, you know? If aliens do communicate with us, at least it'll probably be through binary language first and then everything else. Um, love is a universal language, too, and I love all of you here just to state that. Um, but mathematics is also a universal language. And then finally, does long-term and consistent exposure to the scientific method affect student academic performance and structure of thinking? So over the next couple of years, as we take these students and give them this James Webb Space Telescope storytelling project as we send them to Tufts University to capture the Center for Engineering Education outreach, enroll in that program, create a video for them, work with California State University Northridge, maybe in the climate change project again, um, create animations for researchers from Caltech or NASA. Over the course of a two or three year period, how does that uh, affect their, their thinking? And how are we gonna measure that? Because my sort of bold hypothesis, if you will, is that if you learn science over the course of many, many years, that really has an impact on every single action that you do. And I always tell students, next time you're out in, in a car and somebody cuts you off, just remember some of the projects we've done. Just remember the, the vastness of this universe. And sometimes you'll forget all of these ills of society that we have. So... Our case study randomly selected BFA students participating in STEAM projects throughout the duration of the program. That's what we're going to quantify through exams, compare their exams to the rest of the school who haven't been participating in this program, interview them, of course, give them certain you know, scenarios and say, how will you respond to that? See the evolution over the next couple of years. Look at their class projects, either cl projects within the STEAM program 
or projects that they conduct within their other classes. And finally, their actual production as filmmakers, as actors, as screenwriters, as storytellers. Um, how does that impact them? And that's actually going to be very, very exciting. And we're really excited to, to capture all of these questions. So that's pretty much it. STEAM, the next generation teaching module. Kind of cool ending to the talk, right? That was all me, by the way. Um, so thank you very much again, all of you. I appreciate that. Again, thank you, Kim. Thank you, Brad. And you guys take care. See you.